0: Let me invite you to uh, turn to 1 Corinthians once again. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 this morning. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 1 through 11. Um, and as we're turning there, uh, let's remember that one of the major issues Paul's been dealing with in 1 Corinthians is the problem of division. We saw at the beginning of the letter... Um, the Corinthians were dividing over their favorite leaders. I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Cephas, or uh, I follow Jesus, some of them said. We saw in chapter 6 that some of them were taking one another to civil court for malicious reasons. And last time we saw, uh, surrounding the issue of the Lord's Supper, what, what's meant to be a fellowship meal. Um, the well-off were, uh, were indulging themselves in excess, some of them to the point of getting drunk. And others who were not as well off sat by watching in humiliation and shame. Division was a real issue in the church of Corinth. Now here in chapters 12 through 14, Paul is going to start talking about uh, matters related to spiritual gifts and their function in the church of Jesus Christ. But he is still dealing with problems in the Corinthian church which were causing division. Because some of the Corinthians were claiming to be uh, uber-spiritual, super-elite Christians. Christians who were uniquely gifted. And they were boasting in their gifts, making really making everything about them and their experience. And so Paul begins to address this in verse 1. Now the ESV translates it, Now Concerning Spiritual Gifts. Um, But what he literally says in in the Greek is now concerning spirituals. The word for gifts isn't isn't there. So most likely Paul is saying something like now concerning spiritual people. Because there was a group in Corinth who considered themselves the the right, the the spiritual ones. They were the, the spiritual people with the gifts to prove it. And everyone else was seen in their eyes as a kind of second-class citizen. And so Paul is writing to deal with that and to clarify what real, true, authentic Christian spirituality actually looks like. What does it mean to be an authentically spiritual person? Paul is going to tell us in this passage. Okay, so here's an outline for us today. Uh, In verses 1 through 3... Paul identifies a mark of true spirituality. The truly spiritual person is Christ centered, not gift centered. You could say Christocentric, not charisma centric. They're all about Jesus and not about their giftedness. That's the mark of true spirituality. And then in verses 4 through 11, he describes for us the ministry of a truly spiritual person. Okay, so the mark of true spirituality and the ministry of a truly spiritual person. I think about it though. If the mark of true spirituality is Christ-centeredness rather than self-centeredness, then the ministry of a truly spiritual person in the church will be a focus on edifying others, building others up, serving for the common good, not promoting Self. Okay, so the marks of true spirituality Christocentric, not charisma centric, and the ministry of a truly spiritual person, edification, serving others, not self service. Uh, Before we read here, uh, you'll also notice at the end of this section uh, that Paul lists off uh, several spiritual gifts. And you know, there's a lot of fascination with some of those gifts. Uh, today, I'm sure it's been true throughout the history of the church. But let me tell you now, we're, we're not going to work through all of those gifts and spend time talking about speaking in tongues and so forth today. We'll get, all, we'll get into all of that later in this chapter, and especially when we get into chapter 14. So hold your horses. We'll, we'll get there. Hold your horses. Um, but it's not going to be our focus today, because actually it's not Paul's focus in this passage. Paul is not focused on the gifts um, he is focused on the function of the gifts in the life and fellowship of the church. And how that reflects true spirituality with a concern for the glory of Christ and the good of his people. Before we read the passage, why don't we uh, briefly pause and, and pray and ask for the Lord to help us understand. Let's pray. Our Father, we uh, we come this morning as children in need of instruction. And so we pray that by the Holy Spirit, you would teach us, help us to have a sense of the significance of the moment before us, that the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ intends to speak to us in the moments ahead by his word and spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, and we pray that you would renew and transform our minds, that we might be conformed to the likeness of our Savior, to the glory of the Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First Corinthians 12, uh, verse 1. Let's hear God's word. Now concerning spiritual gifts, or concerning spirituals, spiritual people. Brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. I think it's right to say that all kinds of problems break out in the church. Uh, When Christians prize certain gifts over others, forgetting that all spiritual gifts are for the glory of God and the good of God's people. There was certainly a great deal of confusion in the Corinthian uh, church surrounding spiritual giftedness. I think sometimes in our own day, uh, in our own thinking as Christians, we can use the language of gifts, or gift, right? Something received, something given to us that we receive. But then we go on to pay attention to the gifted one, As though the church ought to give them a place of prominence and privilege and place them on a pedestal for special attention and adoration. As if the church and the Christian life is a kind of meritocracy and people with certain gifts are privileged over others. And This was certainly beginning to happen in Corinth. Certain individuals were taking pride of place in a sort of ranked hierarchical structure within the life of the church. And it was, it was divisive and ugly, but ultimately it was sinful, and as we will see, in a profound way, ungodly. And so a helpful place to start, I think, is to make sure that we are thinking correctly about spiritual gifts, what we mean when we're using this kind of language. You know, the word gift in Greek is the word charisma, You know, the root word there is the word we get uh, grace from, charis. Right, so in the New Testament, at the most fundamental level, spiritual gifts are not innate abilities of an individual for which an individual is to be admired. These are donations of grace, and their purpose is not so that the gifted one would be made much of, but so that the gift giver would be made much of. None other than the Lord Jesus Christ who gifts and equips his people by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so the great purpose of spiritual gifts is the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is precisely, I think, Paul's point in these opening verses, in verses 1 through 3, where he writes about A mark of true spirituality. What is it that characterizes a truly spiritual person? Notice what Paul does. He first of all reminds them in verse 2 of how easily they had been led astray back in their former pagan days. Uh, The mystery religions and the pagan cults of the Greco-Roman world were, were marked by a spirituality that was obsessed with displays of power and All kinds of ecstasies and otherworldly experiences. And we've seen the Corinthians do this again and again, haven't we, In, in this letter? Bringing with them into their Christian lives and into the Christian church and into Christian worship, baggage, baggage from their former pagan lives and experience. And so as they think about what it means to be spiritual, they think that in the Christian life and in the Christian church, Much like in their former pagan lives, spirituality is put on display. Spirituality is confirmed by spiritual ecstasy. Mountaintop kind of spiritual experiences. They were all about certain gifts because they thought, this is how you know we're for real. This is how you know we're a really spiritual group of individuals. And Paul is going to challenge that again and again. He challenges it head on here. Look at what he says in verses 2 and 3. You know when you were pagans you were led astray. Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God says Jesus is accursed and, and so on. First I want to stop there and just ask you to notice the knowing language that Paul uses instead of feeling language. That's significant. As he talks about true spirituality, he says, I don't want you to be uninformed. He says, you know. He says, I want you to understand. His challenge to them is that authentic spirituality does not bypass the mind. It engages it. It informs it. It it transforms it. Think about it. How does transformation take place? in our lives? By the renewing of what? I'm really asking you. How does transformation take place? By the renewing of our minds, right? Isn't that what the Apostle Paul says? It's not, therefore, irrational or anti-intellectual or some kind of ineffable mystical experience. We are transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so authentic spirituality, Paul is making clear, from the get-go here, it's not irrational. It's not grounded in an emotional or some kind of a static experience. Though we certainly shouldn't disconnect it or divorce it from our emotions. God has given us emotions as human beings. But God works by engaging our minds. And the Spirit does that. It does His work in us as we are directed by the teaching of God and illuminated by the Spirit Of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that begins to happen in our lives. Paul says. We will see that at the center. Of authentic spirituality. Is not the self. It's not about your feelings. It's not about your experiences. It's not about your appetites. The center of authentic spirituality. The whole structure of these verses is fascinating. Because it makes it so clear. The center is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's all about the Lord Jesus. And so he says no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. He's he's reminding them of of how it was when they were unbelievers, first of all, that the world is is in opposition to Jesus. When non-Christians discover just how far-reaching the lordship claims of Jesus Christ really are, they respond with rejection. Reaction is of a rebellious world is always, let Jesus be anathema. That's the word that Paul uses here. That's translated accursed. But when the Holy Spirit, Paul says, makes us new creatures in Christ, what was once a response of rejection becomes a joyful and willing adoration and submission. A pledge of allegiance, if you will. This is the earliest Christian creed. Jesus Christ is Lord. And Paul is saying no one can say it. He doesn't mean no one can mouth the words apart from the Holy Spirit. He means that no one can say from the heart with joyful surrender and submission in their lives. No one can truly pledge allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ unless the Holy Spirit has first sovereignly made them a new creature in Christ. And so the mark of true spirituality, it's not giftedness, but Christ-centeredness. So the truly spiritual among us, they're, they're not obsessed with their own image, but the glory of God shining brightly in the face of Jesus Christ. So we we ought to want to be Christ-centered because that is the mark of real, authentic spirituality. We want to be be self-forgetful and Christ-absorbed. And we need to understand as we begin to think in this sort of mini-series about spiritual gifts, that this is the Fundamental ministry of the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives is not designed to put all of the attention on the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to put the spotlight on Jesus Christ. Nor is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to give us gifts so that we become turned in upon ourselves. No, the ministry of the Spirit is always about exalting Jesus to the glory of the Father. And so in light of this, maybe we should just do a brief spiritual checkup on ourselves and ask, does Paul's description of true spirituality describe us? Is it a description of us? Does it reflect the aspirations and the longings of your heart that that you would be fixated upon the Lord Jesus Christ and that he would be the, the sun in the solar system of your life so that everything orbits around him? Do you say with joy in your heart, Jesus Christ is Lord, knowing the implications of that reach to every aspect of your life? That is true spirituality. See, tr- spiritual people are not those who are constantly talking about the necessity and the importance of certain spiritual gifts. Spiritual people are not necessarily the prominent Christians you'll find on social media with thousands upon thousands of followers. Spiritual people are Christians who have and are being transformed. And now they understand that everything, everything is about the Lord Jesus. Everything is centered around him. That's Paul's message for the Corinthians. And dear friends, it's God's word to us today. And so if that's what a truly spiritual person is, then what will a truly spiritual person do? That's the next question we need to ask. How does this get worked out in the life of a church? That's the second thing in this passage. The ministry of a truly spiritual person. In a nutshell, basically what Paul is teaching here is that the ministry of a truly spiritual person, because they are Christ-centered, will in some ways reflect the ministry of Christ himself. That means it will be focused on service and not self-promotion. That's the point of verse 7. If you take a look at it, to each is given The manifestation of the spirit for the common good. So why are gifts given? So that we might serve one another. So that we might build one another up. So that we might edify the church of Jesus Christ. So that we can be a blessing. That's why. And so, um, Paul is teaching us here that gifts are given for the common good. For service. Gifts are, in New Testament language, all about one anothering. And we'll continue to see this as we work through chapters 12 through 14. But but please note this now. Note this up front. There are no spiritual gifts, none whatsoever, that are all about you on your own. That's really important for us to understand today, I think. There are no spiritual gifts that Jesus gives to believers by the Holy Spirit that are just for you. They are always for others. When you think about what that means then for the implications of our Christian lives. I think one thing we can say just as an aside here is this is a reason it's absolutely crucial. For your spiritual well-being, for your spiritual health, and the spiritual well being and health of others to be devoted to the life and fellowship of a local church. Think about this. If you aren't, you're, you're effectively removing yourself from the gifts the Spirit of God gives to the body of Christ to build itself up and mature in Jesus' likeness. You're saying you don't need the gifts Jesus gives to grow and mature. In the Christian life. Now I know none of us would really want to say that. One thing I love. um, On Calvin's institutes. In reflecting upon the imagery of the body of Christ. Which we'll come to soon enough. um, Calvin says. God has so ordered the church this way. That we are all mutually dependent. Upon one another. That's right on. That's what Paul is teaching in this passage. He's helping us understand this. In verses 4 through 11. And like I said, he's going to go on to use the the imagery of the church as a body made up of different parts. Many parts, but one body. Showing us that we are diverse with different functions and different roles and different gifts. And yet, uh, the functioning of every part is crucial and fundamental to the, the functioning of the body as a whole as we seek to serve the Lord Jesus Christ together. That's the same message, though, he's teaching here in verses 4 through 11. But Paul appeals to something else in order to teach it. In verses 4 through 6, he points us not first of all to the unity and diversity of the body. He points us to the unity and diversity of the triune God. you Notice that. Did you catch it in verses 4 through 6? <laughs> Take another look at it with me. And just pay close attention to the language he uses. He says, There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So different gifts, different ministries, different activities. We are all called to be engaged in. And notice they are sourced, they come from the Spirit, the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, and God, God the Father Almighty. And so here is the blessed three in one, the triune God who acts unitedly in giving various gifts to the church. Now, with that in mind, look at verses 7 through 11. And notice that in almost every verse, as Paul goes through this list of spiritual gifts, he attributes the giving of these gifts, the empowering of these gifts, to the Holy Spirit. He says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Uh, Verse 8, so one is given through the Spirit, the utterance of wisdom, the utterance of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another, faith by the same Spirit, To another, gifts of healing by one spirit, and so on. And in verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit. So think about that for a minute. In verses 4 through 6, the triune God, all three persons are involved in the giving of the gifts. But in verses 7 through 11, the focus is solely on the Holy Spirit as the one who gives the gifts. What do you make of that? Is there any significance to that? Um, Is Paul contradicting himself? Let's slow down and try to understand this. I actually, I think he's teaching something crucial, something really important about our understanding of God. He's teaching us something important about the doctrine of God. I want to ask you to stick, stick with me for a minute while I try my best to explain this. And then I want us to try to appreciate why this really matters as we think about spirituality and spiritual gifts in the church. I think, correct me later if I'm wrong, I think there is a tendency today for Christians to say, we know the doctrine of the Trinity is important for us as Christians. So we say, yes, Trinity, but then we just kind of shrug our shoulders and move on to other things that we think are more significant significant. Of course, confessing God's triunity is important, first of all, because it's who God is all the way down. God is one in three persons, eternally and exhaustively. But it's also important because the doctrine of the Trinity is directly relevant to so much of the Christian life. Because the God who made us and the God who redeemed us is Trinitarian, our worship, our prayer, our Christian lives, Christian obedience, Christian worship, Christian fellowship takes on a Trinitarian shape. And Paul is showing us one aspect of how that's the case here by teaching us the biblical principle of the inseparable work of the triune God. Biblical principle of the inseparable work of the Triune God. I think we see that in in verses four through six, he says that in some sense all spiritual gifts come from the Triune God, from the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But in verses seven through eleven, he says it is the Spirit in particular who gives these gifts, empowers these gifts, and the fellowship of the church, and Paul is not contradicting himself in saying this. He is teaching the principle that all of the operations, all of the work of God in creation and in providence and in redemption is indivisible so that any work performed by one person of the Godhead is simultaneously the work of the three but at the same time, God's work is carried out by one of the three persons. Let's, just, let's, try, to, let's try to wrap our minds around this by thinking about God's work in some other areas. Okay? Think about in terms of the application of our redemption. Right? When it comes to adoption, who adopts us? Who is it that, that declares us to be the children of God? They're all so quiet. It's the Father, right? It's the Father. It's not the Son. It's not the Spirit who makes that declaration. And yet, it's the Father who adopts us in and through His Son, who brings us to share in the the, the, uh, status of sonship. We are sons in the Son, and who gives us the spirit of adoption, who testifies within us that we are the children of God. Or think of something else. How about... about, um, God's uh, securing our redemption on the cross. Who was it that died for us on Calvary's cross? I hope we, I, sometimes we slip up when we're praying and say, you know, Father, thank you for, for for dying for us. But properly speaking, that's not correct, is it? The Father didn't die for us. The Holy Spirit did not die for us. It was The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity in union with our humanity who was nailed to the tree. Or think about our sanctification. Who is it that purifies us? Who is it that conforms us to the image of God? We understand that the the acting person there in our lives is the Holy Spirit. Right? As he conforms us to the image of Jesus that we might bear the family likeness of the Father. And so all of the works of the three persons are the work of God indivisibly, and yet they are carried out in such a way that the distinctness of each person is upheld in this beautiful, profound mystery of the unity of three in one and one in three. Okay, now, with our heads spinning, at least mine is, Let's try to think about why this matters. You know, if you're tempted to think this is just theological mumbo-jumbo-ivory-tower uh, stuff, hang on a second. Because if the God who gives gifts for Christian service is diverse and yet one, if in God there is both distinction and harmony, well then, you see, how, how can we possibly, how can we who have been given gifts by this God Use gifts for self-promotion, to make much of self to the exclusion of others. See, surely, surely, if the church is called, redeemed, and gifted by the triune God, then the way in which we use these gifts for service ought to be a reflection of this kind of unity within diversity. You see, Paul appeals to Trinitarian doctrine here, I think deliberately, to underscore his point about spirituality, about the diversity of spiritual gifts in the church of Jesus Christ. Because the God who has redeemed us is one in three. He is profoundly united in all of his works and in himself he is one. And yet at the same time, he's gloriously three. There's real diversity and distinction in the indivisible unity. And the church redeemed by the triune God reflects this unity in diversity, in its activity, in its work, and in its service. And so you see the mark of true spirituality then, a Christ-centered life, and the ministry of a truly spiritual person. they, They pour themselves out in service for the common good. Now, here are just a couple of things that means for us, and then we're done this morning. Uh, First, as we reflect upon these two ideas, because true spirituality is Christ-centered and service-oriented, that means, dear brothers and sisters, we need to be looking for ways to exalt Jesus by serving one another within the household of faith. Let me recommend something at this point, because... I don't know if this is still a thing or not. Maybe I'm revealing that I am starting to age a little bit. But likely we've all heard of those spiritual gift questionnaires. Have you ever filled one of those out? I I have. um, Multiple times. You know how they work? You answer a list of questions. You check off some boxes. And at the end of it, you're supposed to know, okay, this is how I am spiritually gifted. The intention is good. But I think as we reflect upon what Paul is teaching us here and what he will continue to teach us in the following chapters, that this is actually worlds apart from the teaching of Scripture, which exhorts us to be service-minded. And so we we don't sit around saying, well, you know, I see that need, I know there's this need in the church, but that's not my gift. That's not my thing. So there's nothing I can do about it. Instead, we learn to say, I see that need, and I don't know if I can be of any help. I don't know if I can be of any good, but what can I do? What can I do to be a blessing? What can I do to serve for the common good? How can I help? And as we throw ourselves at opportunities and seek to serve, giftedness becomes clear, doesn't it? Gifts are discerned and sharpened and cultivated through service. That's the first thing. The second thing is that since God gives gifts to all believers, you see that again and again in this passage, don't you? Verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So every Christian is a recipient of, of a spiritual gift or spiritual gifts. And dear friends, since that is true, the consequence is that every single one of us is called to ministry. Every single one of us is called to ministry. Every single one of us is called and gifted and equipped by God to serve the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you walk into the church, uh, where you pick up the bulletin, we have the that red sign on the wall, and I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't have it memorized. But you know, it says something like Trinity Presbyterian Church exists to to serve God in worship, to serve God's people in fellowship, and to serve the world in gospel witness. And I think that's a good summary of those are big headings, but summary of why we are here as a church why we exist we exist to serve God in worship we exist to serve one another in areas of discipleship and fellowship and we exist to serve God's world our community with bearing witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ but dear friends we will never get any of that done if we make the tragic mistake of thinking that ministry is the business of a few professionals We will never get it done if we think we can outsource the ministry of the church to a few select individuals. It is the work of the body working together as it is gifted and equipped and empowered by the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in closing, let me ask you. Who who are you serving? How are you serving? Don't don't. Don't misunderstand me. I am, I am not suggesting that what Paul is teaching here means that you must be you know, the head of some official ministry, right? some public ministry of the church. But how are you serving people? Because that's what ministry is about, right? Ministry is not about going to endless meetings. Meetings are important. We're really good at meetings as Presbyterians. But those meetings are to help us better serve people, right? As we seek to serve God. Who are you serving? How are you serving? If we're constantly and always saying, I need to add another qualification here, there are seasons of busyness, I get that. But if we are constantly and always saying, I am too busy, I can't do that. Dear brothers and sisters, we need to reorder our priorities. We need to make some changes in our lives. It should ever be on our mind. How can I help? How can I serve the common good and further the work that God has called us to do as the body of Christ Jesus? And so there's a call here, a call to true spirituality that is focused on Jesus and and not on self. And there is a call to ministry that is the effect of being truly spiritually minded as we seek to serve. And dear brothers and sisters, I think that as we do, by the grace of God, we have every reason to believe and hope that God will do great and wonderful things in our midst. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we we bow before you asking that you would give us a heart for service, hearts for serving you, and hearts for serving um, our brothers and sisters In Christ Jesus. Give us the heart of Christ himself. Who came into this world. Not to be served. But to serve. And we pray that as a congregation. More and more we would grow in greater faithfulness. And serving together. In worshiping you. In building one another up. As we mature in Christ Jesus. In doing all that we can. To reach others with the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.